Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi says China stands firm as a stabilizing force in turbulent world. G20 foreign ministers discuss global security ahead of the group's summit that will take place in November. It's been a full two years since the Ukraine crisis erupted. When will the end? You're listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast cast by searching Road Today. China has pledged to serve as a stabilizing force in turbulent road, fostering cooperation among major nations through respect and trust. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi made the remarks in a news briefing after participating in Munich Security Conference and wrapping up visits to Spain and France. Wang added, China advocates for rational China-U.S. relations and scoring mutual respect and cooperation for peaceful coexistence. He emphasized cooperation cooperation as the cornerstone of China-Europe relations, highlighting opportunities for mutual benefit and market access. Wang also stressed the political resolution for conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza, urging international efforts to prevent escalation and prioritize peace. So to talk more on Wang's trip to Europe, joining us on the line is Victor Gao, chair professor at Suzhou University. Thanks for joining us, professor. Thank you very much for having me. Professor, first of all, what's your overall assessment on Wang's recent engagements in Europe, including his participation in the Munich Security Conference? What messages has China conveyed to the world through these platforms? Well, this is not the first time where the Chinese leaders attended the Munich Security Conference. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Mr. Wang Yi, uh, the top diplomat in China, attended this year's session, the 60th anniversary of the Munich Security Conference, again demonstrated that China has taken the Munich Security Conference very seriously and appreciates the important role it plays in security matters in the world. And the fact that Mr. Wang Yi made an important speech and answered various questions from the international media, also indicated that China is very serious in trying to communicate with the rest of the world, especially countries in the West, in the global South and elsewhere, what China is doing, how China looks at the peace and security issues or war and peace issues in the world, and how China would position itself in dealing with many of the challenges that mankind is faced with. This is a very good occasion for China, as well as for many other countries, to explain their position. And hopefully, China and Mr. Wang Yi made made their part to make China's position better known or well known to the rest of the world. Professor, the theme of this year's Munich Security Conference, titled Loose Loose, reflects Europe's pessimistic outlook on the international situation and also highlights the severe challenges of facing the world today. So how should China respond to mitigate the risks associated with, like, for example, deficits in global governance, the escalation of geopolitical tensions, the resurgence of zero-sum dynamics, and potential ramifications such as decoupling and de-risking? Well, first of all, uh, personally, I'm actually a little bit shocked by the way the organizers of the Munich Security Conference uh, positioned the uh, main topic for the conference this year. Now, I hope they will be more optimistic and they will be more upbeat. Why? Because even if Europe is faced with this lose-lose scenario, which is bad for every country in Europe and possibly for the rest of the world, I think they need to keep up with optimism and they need to look forward into the future in a positive way rather than in a highly pessimistic and downbeat manner. Because I think... The way you look at the world is actually very important. Sometimes it's more important than what you are going to do because these two things, perceptions and realities, are highly related to each other. I don't think Europe or the world at large is faced with this lose-lose scenario. 
I think while there are many challenges, eventually, if mankind follows the right path and thinks positively, I think we can overcome all these challenges. The bottom line is that we should embrace peace, and we should resist the war. We should resist the Cold War mentality raising its dangerous head again, and we should resist any attempt to divide the world into opposing blocks and encourage or ask, agitate for war or confrontation between and among nations. I think Mr. Wang Yi's speech and his answers to the questions exactly illustrated this important point. He emphasized that China has never initiated any war since 1949 against any country, big or small. Sometimes other countries probably are confused why China is wasting all this time talking, 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 negotiation, uh, diplomacy, etc. Because they thought China being such a very big, very strong country, why, why doesn't it take some military action to solve a small matter, for example? Mm-hmm. But from the Chinese perspective, war or initiating war is always the wrong thing. And war should be of the last resort rather than the first priority. And China will not launch any war on its own initiative against any country, big or small. And China will stick with peace, embrace peace, and resist any any temptation for war. This sets China apart from any other major countries in the world. And I hope China has set up a very good example for the other countries. And while war is raging on in different parts of the world, and today is actually the second anniversary of the war between Russia and Ukraine, Mm -hmm. And it's mind-boggling that this war in the middle of Europe has lasted into the third year, and there is still no sign of this war ending. From day one of this war, China has been calling for ceasefire, ceasefire, stopping hostilities, restoring peace through diplomacy, through good offices, through negotiations. And when the war between Palestine and Gaza, when the ravages, all the atrocities were being committed in Gaza, China has been calling for ceasefire again. Ceasefire, ceasefire, and China has been dismayed by some country, sometimes one single country, blocking the United Nations Security Council resolution calling for ceasefire for the war between Israel and those helpless uh, Palestinians in Gaza. This is what China stands for. China stands for peace. China promotes peace. China embraces peace and I hope this is a better example, a good example, an exemplary example for the rest of the world, especially for those countries which sometimes cannot wait to give up any kind of attempt to try to build up peace. And they yield to any temptation for conflict and war mm-hmm. between nations and among nations. It's time for mankind to wake up. There is always a better choice, and the better choice is peace. And the worst choice should always be war. Then, Professor, as you said, China has been advocating positive solutions to world challenges, as we heard from Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Do you believe that China's proposals align with the pressing needs of the current world, especially those uh, major players on the global stage? And how is the international community responding to China's propositions today? Well, China did hold it off to uh, promote Uh, between Iran and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which was in itself very, very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. But China did this. It set a good example and started a whole series of reactions in the Middle East, uh, building up momentum for better relations between and among many countries. I think there are other occasions where China can really put its diplomacy to the better use and uh, pave the way for better results, peaceful solutions of many conflicts in the world. However, it always takes two. As a matter of fact, it always takes more than two to tangle, and China by itself will not be able to solve all these problems and challenges facing mankind. 
and we need to work closely with other countries. And I hope, philosophically, mankind and many other countries will realize, as I just now said, there is a better choice, there is a highway, and sometimes China plays the role of a diploma, diplomat, a statesman, sometimes a philosopher, a kind of professor, college uh, professors, for example, always giving the advice and counseling for peace against the war, etc. Sometimes people are a little bit impatient. They want to have quick solutions, overnight solutions. And sometimes they even fall into the trap. The war probably will be better to achieve their geopolitical game. The reality from the Chinese perspective is always the opposite. War is the worst choice. War should be reserved for the last choice. And no one should be tempted to take war as a first priority. And I think the world should be convinced that China has a better way. And China has a higher way to make the world a more peaceful place for all of us. Okay, thank you very much, Professor, for your insights and time. That's Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. Coming up, G20 foreign ministers discuss global security. You're listening to Road Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. You've been listening to Road Today. Foreign ministers from the group of 20 members are meeting in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, head of the group's summit that will take place in November. The participants will focus on issues including international crisis triggered by conflicts and reforms related to the global governance. Paulo Gabriel reports. Brazil's G20 presidency kicked off in Rio de Janeiro on Wednesday with a gathering of the group's foreign affairs ministers, along with some guests. On the agenda for the first day, global security, to focus on global governance, one of the key themes for this year. Brazil's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Mauro Vieira, delivered opening remarks. In our view, the G20 can and should play a fundamental role in reducing international tensions, as well as advancing the sustainable development agenda. Dear colleagues, Brazil is deeply concerned about the current international situation regarding peace and security. Brazil, as the G20 president this year, has defined three priorities to be discussed by the group. Social inclusion to fight hunger and poverty, promotion of sustainable development to combat climate change, and reforming global governance institutions. Even though the conflicts happening around the world are not explicitly among the key G20 themes, President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva made it clear when Brazil took over the G20 presidency last year that these conflicts don't happen in a vacuum and must be addressed. Brazil continues to mourn the tragic conflict between Israel and Palestine. Inequalities are at the root of the problems we face or contribute to worsening them. We need a new globalization that combats social disparity. Ahead of Wednesday's event, President Lula met with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Brasilia. Even though most of the discussion was held behind closed doors, U.S. officials said the two-hour talks included the Gaza conflict, and reports indicate Blinken also told Lula the U.S. did not agree with his recent comments comparing Israel's actions in Gaza to the Holocaust, which triggered a diplomatic row between Brazil and Israel. What is clear here is that global tensions and conflicts cannot be ignored. The G20 is gathering at a moment of heightened tensions around the world. As this year's preparations for the November summit kick off, one big question is how much world leaders will be able to advance the group's agenda amid such a challenging environment. Paulo Cabral, CGTN, Rio de Janeiro. To delve deeper into the gathering and its implications for global security, I spoke with Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations at East China Normal University. He started the conversation by sharing his perspective on his expectation from these meetings in solving today's global challenges. 
Well, let's keep in mind that the G20 was formed in 1999 in the wake of global economic instability and then reinvigorated uh, with the U.S. instigated global financial crisis in 2008 uh, when the U.S. Uh, sought international cooperation to help clean up the mess it had made. Um, since then, it's been politicized, unfortunately, by the U.S. to advance its own geostrategic interest, uh, leaving the organization about as effective as the U.S. Congress, which is to say rather dysfunctional. Uh, for example, the British Foreign Secretary has stated uh, that one of his primary objectives is to use the meeting to criticize his Russian counterpart, which is uh, little more than political theater. Now, we sometimes say these meetings are good because at least they bring people together, but I'm not sure that crossing the Atlantic to criticize Sergei Lavrov is useful for easing tensions. Uh, everyone, in fact, has been posturing on the Ukraine issue for almost two years, and the mm -hmm. war uh, has been stalemated for more than a year. Uh, nevertheless, lives are still being lost. Now, I think that there are two points here that need to be made. Uh, the first is that the G20 has been eclipsed as the U.S. has retreated to a first world first approach by promoting uh, international divisiveness uh, with the G7, uh, largely to support uh, U.S. hegemony and above all uh, at the expense of the global south. The second is that we are still facing the possibility of a global recession this year. Um, uh, when we consider anticipated global growth in tandem with anticipated global inflation. Uh, and given uh, um, uh, what we've heard recently from the former U.S. Treasury Secretary and current Harvard professor uh, Larry Summers, uh, who said uh, a few days ago that the U.S. and China are in the same boat, whether they like it or not, and need to work together for mutual and greater good, above all in economic affairs, uh, we might see the original function of the G20 returning. Uh, mm -hmm. If we if we do in, see, uh, in fact see uh, an economic crisis coming this year or next, uh, when it will be necessary to coordinate responses uh, in order to um, uh, ensure that uh, everyone uh, is able to survive them. Then Professor Brazil is the G20 president this year. So considering the current geopolitical landscape and the challenges the world is facing, how do you anticipate Brazil's G20 presidency in the context of promoting international cooperation and reducing global tensions? Well, last year, the G20 presidency was held by India, which you know, India in recent years has leaned in two directions towards Washington and Moscow. Now, Brazil under President Lula has warm relations with China and the U.S. He doesn't have an antagonistic relation with Russia, but he also, I think, has a stronger sense of global social justice than uh, his uh, counterpart in India and certainly his own predecessor in Brasilia. And I think we can already see Brazil taking a different approach, condemning, uh, for example, the impotency of the U.N. Security Council, accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza, demanding reforms to multilateral institutions that were built originally for a Cold War order and that are doing little to prevent the return of a Cold War now. So on the whole, it's not unreasonable to suggest that Brazil is taking an activist approach to its presidency of the G20 and that it's advancing a balanced, realistic uh, uh, perspective. Now, there are uh, two countries, however, that seem uh, rather upset uh, with uh, what we're seeing from Brazil. These are the U.S. and Israel, with uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, uh, Anthony Blinken saying Washington opposes peace efforts in Ukraine now and likewise opposes the genocide claim in Gaza, while Israel has simply declared Lula a persona non grata. Um, now, is, is, is Lula's approach consistent with promoting international cooperation and reducing global tensions, or is he aiming to point out existing and growing dangers for conflict? I think it's the latter. Yes. China and the U.S. are crucial factors in global security. But recently, during his participations in the Munich Security Conference, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a statement that invites significant interpretation and warrants thorough analysis when responding to questions about whether U.S.-China tensions are leading to greater fragmentation. He used an American slum phrase saying that if you are not at the table in the international system, you are going to be on the menu. Then how do you interpret Blinken's understanding of U.S.-China relations today? Well, you know, I think Blinken trying to sound folksy rings about as silly as George W. Bush's attempts to do so years ago. You know, these are uh, old New England blue bloods, uh, Harvard-educated scions uh, with little regard for the common man 
uh, or for developing countries. Uh, 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 that said, uh, the way I understand Blinken is uh, that he means that countries need to choose a side uh, between uh, China and the United States. And, and he says they, they need to choose the American side if they want to eat instead of being eaten. Now, honestly, this description suggests a very dark vision uh, of a future where the U.S. will determine who survives. And I think it, it should be repudiated strongly uh, by everyone, including uh, America's closest allies in Europe. Then is such an interpretation the only choice for the U.S. regarding China? Can you elaborate more on how might this understanding affect world security? Well, you know, I think, unfortunately, Blinken has demonstrated again and again that he's an unimaginative puppet of an old war ordered, uh, one that aims to perpetuate American hegemony, one that is above all symbolized by old men like his boss, Biden. Uh, and frankly, uh, Donald Trump is no better. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the U.S. has fallen into a hole uh, when it comes to understanding geopolitics because its power now is so fragile, uh, depending uh, on its outsized uh, military uh, financed entirely um, uh, by the, the uh, ability to manipulate the value of the U.S. dollar as the supranational currency. Now, is this um, uh, uh, characterization of uh, geopolitics the only choice for America? Of course not. But, you know, there's neither the political uh, nor uh, economic uh, ability in the U.S. now to change course uh, with respect uh, to the, the uh, manifold domestic problems that the U.S. faces. Uh, and so the U.S. will continue to externalize its problems, uh, forcing the rest of the world uh, to pay for them. And the longer this happens, the harder it will be for the U.S. to change course. And perhaps it's already too late. Uh, you know, that's why uh, the rest of the world needs alternatives, including one uh, that uh, President Lula supports, uh, like the BRICS Bank in Shanghai, um, as well as uh, uh, other efforts uh, to uh, build uh, new multilateralisms uh, that uh, resist uh, American financial hegemony. In recent years, we have observed the United States increasingly broadening the concept of national security, with American officials perceiving so-called threats in various areas from China. How do you assess the intensifying China threat narrative in the United States, especially during a presidential election year? You know, the U.S. government stokes public concerns about China and then exploits them, and they do this both within the United States and globally. Uh, you know, some people say that the U.S. has, in fact, uh, abandoned uh, free market capitalism and has embraced some retrograde uh, form of mercantilism. In fact, I think the U.S. economy is hyper real. Uh, it's based entirely on uh, the ability to spend huge amounts of money despite massive deficits and to simply create new money and manipulate global, global interest rates via the Federal Reserve. Of course, the U.S. still wants to sell agricultural products to China and doesn't mind stocking the shelves of Walmart and Dollar General with cheap manufacturer, uh, manufacturers, regardless of where they come from, regardless of what uh, international workers are paid or how uh, the global environment is degraded. Uh, this is true of Biden. It, it was true of Trump. It'll be true of whoever wins the election later this year. Uh, and indeed, I think one of the things that we should recall is, is uh, 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 the punchline of, of many of uh, Trump's uh, MAGA products is that they were, you know, made in China. Uh, uh, he, he's demonizing China, and yet he's, he's selling products, talking about making America great again um, uh, with, with uh, products that were manufactured by Chinese workers. The, 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 the end point here is that the China narrative isn't going away anytime soon. It's going to be red hot this year with the presidential campaigns, and it won't dissipate after the election. This is the price of China's national rejuvenation and American declines. If nothing else, China should regard this as a type of respect. Whether or not China is indeed a greater threat to the U.S. than the U.S. is to itself or to the rest of the world. That was Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations at East China Normal University. More to come is being a full two years since the Ukraine crisis erupted. When will we end? You're listening to Road Today. We'll be back after a short break.
You've been listening to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. It's been two years since the Ukraine crisis erupted. This conflict, considered as the largest military confrontation in Europe since the turn of the 21st century, still shows no signs of abating. Both sides remain locked in a grueling struggle, while military support to Ukraine side from the United States and Europe falls short. Geopolitical tensions intensify not only a Affecting Ukraine and Russia, but also casting ripples across global energy supply, economy, food exports, nuclear safety, and more. So, given these situations, is there a possibility that the crisis would drag on even further? Joining us in the studio to discuss this matter is Dr. Alexey Muraviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University in Australia. Let's start by assessing the current state of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. How has the situation changed in the last year, given the complexity and the debates surrounding the situation? Which side, in your opinion, has the strategic advantage in the war at this juncture? Well, if we're looking at the at the occurrence of the past twelve months, there's been a change of strategic fortune, mm-hmm. uh, with Ukraine losing strategic initiative and um, suffering a defeat in its attempt to launch a major counteroffensive against the Russian forces, and 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 the Russians gaining. Uh, strategic initiative advancing uh, 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 across the entire line of confrontation, which stretches about 1,000 kilometers, and and making some um, gains, such as, for example, the capture of the strategically symbolic uh, uh, town of Avdivka on the outskirts of Donetsk, which is uh, uh, Ukraine's largest a city in the east uh, of, of, of the country. So I think uh, whilst um, for some time um, um, many defense analysts uh, talked about strategic stalemate, I kind of uh, think that things may actually be turning into Russia's favor, uh, especially if the advance uh, and the success that the Russians managed to demonstrate in recent weeks will now be translated into something a bit more substantial uh, with uh, far longer uh, and far more ambitious gains. Mm-hmm. Professor, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's call on international community to aid Ukraine still as desperate as ever. And according to him, a Russian victory would be a lot more costly for those countries in terms of security. We've observed some of the U.S. Western allies and NATO members reconsidering their approaches to supporting the war effort. So how do you evaluate some of the changing attitudes of NATO members and the potential future direction in their involvement? Look, I think we need to separate the two issues. One is obviously the way how Europe, NATO, and the United States will formulate its future approaches to Ukraine, especially since the Ukrainian military is not really demonstrating any significant advances and successes. And, and at the same time, we need to recognize that Ukraine's failure on the battlefield is not just because uh, the West is not supplying Ukraine with um, sufficient uh, um, uh, military aid. It's because Ukraine is suffering from its own internal problem. We, we need to remember that Zelensky has recently dismissed uh, commander-in-chief and chief of general staff and fired a number of top generals, and it's largely because of the internal political struggle. Um, and, and I think that obviously had an impact on the efficiency, on the combat efficiency of the Ukrainian fighting forces. Uh, there is a, a, an, an ongoing problem with lowering morale and, and the level of preparedness of Ukrainian soldiers, uh, largely because of this forceful mobilization that Ukrainians are trying to escape. And obviously when you drag people to the battlefront against their will, you cannot expect them to put on uh, considerable resistance. So I think there are organizational and, and other challenges that Ukraine is facing because of its internal political struggles, ongoing issue concerning corruption, uh, worsening socioeconomic conditions, uh, losing people's support base and, and the internal power struggle. 
And then uh, there is obviously a, a growing complexity in the relationship between Ukraine and its uh, sponsors in, in, in the West that also started feeling tiredness of the war. They continue to demonstrate uh, support, but obviously it's not as unca- unconditional as a strong as it was two years ago or even a year ago. Mm-hmm. Then, Professor, recently, U.S. former president and Republican frontrunner Donald Trump made some appalling remarks on the crisis, saying he told NATO ally to spend more on defense or he would encourage uh, Russia to do whatever they want. So how do you anticipate Trump's potential return to the White House might influence the Ukraine crisis, considering uh, U.S. significant role as Ukraine's primary aid provider? Well, I mean, Trump made no secret when he was president that he wanted Europe to spend more on defense, and this is something that's been part of the strategic conversations between um, uh, the United States and and its European allies well before Trump. Uh, We also need to be mindful that this is part of his election rhetoric. And, and, And a lot of the rhetoric that is currently taking place in the United States is inward looking. It's designed to appease and impress uh, the electorate in the United States, which largely remains ill-informed of what's happening outside uh, the U.S. national borders or even sometimes outside their own state. So it's not to say that this is what Trump will do if he will uh, return back to the Oval Office and the White House, because, again, we need to de- separate election promises and election talk versus policies and implementation at the time when the new president steps in. So I think I would be treating it with a degree of caution. And well, having said that, obviously, the Europeans are taking it more seriously and they start calculating the potential fallout if Trump is to return to the White House, as some suspect he may be. Mm-hmm. The United States also announced a significant sanctions package targeting Moscow will be out recently, considering that previous sanctions seemed to have limited impact on Russia. Do you anticipate this new round of sanctions to be substantial or effective in what they called holding Russia accountable? Well, I cannot really see that, that, would, uh, that they would add to any more damage that the sanctions have caused. I think the initial wave of sanctions that was supposed to bring Russian economy down to its knees clearly didn't work. Um, there was a severe underestimation of the level of resilience of the Russian economy and Russia's economic potential overall. So whatever is being um, uh, enforced right now, it, it wouldn't be of the same caliber, the same magnitude, and would, it would not have the same lasting, long-lasting effect. As, as the initial waves of sanctions that were imposed progressively throughout 2022. So I think this is what Biden was almost compelled to do, especially after learning about the death of Alexei Navalny in custody, because he promised uh, retribution should Navalny die in Russia's prison. Uh, but in t- and, and, and again, that can also be considered as part of the election campaign mm. in the United States. But in terms of real impact on Russia... Well, I think by now the Russian economy has adopted how to operate on the sanctions. The Russians find a way how to get things um, into their country, bypassing sanctions. So I cannot possibly see uh, these sanctions becoming a game changer. Thank you, Professor, for your time and insights. That's Dr. Alexey Muraviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University in Australia. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. This is Road Today. 
U.S. chip-making company NVIDIA has notched another historic quarter thanks to the high demand for AI graphics chips. The AI chip giant reported a record revenue spike of over 260% in the fourth quarter of last year, beating expectations. It marked the firm's third consecutive quarter of reporting record profits and sales. So for more on this earning report and AI's impact on the stock market, my colleague Xu Yawen spoke with Dr. Zhang Gong, professor with the University of International Business and Economics. Dr. Gong, with the 265 percentage growth rate, what factors have contributed to NVIDIA's remarkable sales performance? Well, I think one word explains it all. That's called AI, uh, abbreviated as AI, artificial intelligence. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, this is going to be a revolution, as a lot of uh, experts and uh, analysts have pointed out. It's going to revolutionize a lot of industries. It's going to be revolutionizing the entire economy. And I think um, NVIDIA is a company uh, playing the leading role in this revolution, the core role, front and center in this revolution. Uh, which I would compare to the Industrial Revolution, certainly has seen its stock price being appreciating like crazy to uh, 600, I think 600 some dollars uh, per share right now. Could you tell us more about how has the market responded to NVIDIA's performance? Well, I think the market has been very enthusiastic from the very beginning. At this point, NVIDIA doesn't really have a sort of a credible competitor right now. I mean, it's it's the only game in town. Uh, I mean, my understanding, I mean, I'm not a... Uh, AI expert, but my understanding is that uh, AI needs a lot of computation power. It's what he described as big model, you know, a lot of data processing to do, and it needs, you know, super fast chipset for that purpose. And NVIDIA is the, um, appears to be right now the only company that is uh, capable of doing something like this. And, you know, all, all these high tech companies developing AI technologies are using NVIDIA chips. Um, so um, it's an upstream company that is supplying to a downstream industry that is revolutionizing things. Certainly, uh, we can understand why the stock has been going up like this. We have learned that the co-founder and CEO of the company, Jensen Huang, says AI has hit a tipping point with its company's data center upgrades in early stages across businesses and industries. How do you understand the tipping point here? Yeah, I think what he is saying is that uh, um, you know, the technology development curve at some point is going to be accelerating. Uh, and I think we're actually very close to that point already at that point. Uh, certainly, we've been seeing major breakthrough innovations one after another in a very short period of time. Uh, and these things are being done very rapidly. And I think um, this is what he's referring to as the tipping point. And uh, we probably have already got into the uh, past that tipping point. You know, with the latest example is the Soros. We were just seeing, you know, the spectacular capability of this kind of a new technology. So, so I think um, looking forward, I think the pace of uh, development in this area is only going to be faster and faster. As demand in the market shifts from developing the models to using them for training and inferencing, how does NVIDIA sustain its success? And also, Dr. Gong, could you explain a bit about what inferencing is? It's all good news for NVIDIA, actually. Whether we're talking about developing the models or actually applying these models for real applications, it all needs computation power. And what it means is that it needs chipsets. We're going to see more and more chipsets being sold by this company, not just to the developers of the core technology, but also companies applying this technology. It's going to be um, used in many industries across the board. So I think... Uh, the market prospect for NVIDIA is going to be very bright. Actually, other than NVIDIA, companies like Supermicrocomputer are also seeing a surge in profits. Um, how will AI revolutionize enterprise software platforms globally? Yeah, this company, Supermicrocomputer, by the way, it's also set up by people from Taiwan. <laughs> um, it, it's in the business of uh, uh, making these very powerful servers using the NVIDIA chips for running AI models. And, you know, the chip doesn't exist in the in the vacuum. It has to be working in such an environment, which is the server environment. And, you know, the big models, the big computation requires a lot of computational power, uh, which means they need, you know, super powerful servers. And 
this company, Supermicrocomputer, it used to be very small, actually, uh, you know, just uh, about 10 years ago. Um, but now, of course, it's a huge company. You know, this company sits in the center of in the server market. That's why it sees profits going through the roof and the stock price going through the roof as well. Dr. Gong, actually, analysts suggest that AI's influence on the stock market is just the beginning. So what's your perspective on the assessment? And how do you see AI shaping our future? Well, in terms of the impact of uh, AI on the stock market, it reminds me of the, you know, in the 1990s, in the dot-com days, right? I mean, at the time, the Internet was just about to take off. Um, many companies going online. There was a dot-com wave. Um, and, and, and then there's, uh, remember, there's also a wave of the telecommunication um, uh, revolution. You know, you have these uh, fiber optics companies, these uh, uh, wavelength division multiplexing companies, you know, they're doing very well. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, they actually made quite a bit of money on investing in these companies in the 1990s. Um, and um, it's very similar things are happening here. Um, if not, just the scale is even more than what happened to these two examples I've just mentioned. Um, I think AI's impact is going to be more profound and more sustaining. Um, so the impact on the stock market uh, um, is probably also going to be more profound and more sustaining. Um, you know, investors like stories like this. I mean, this, this is a revolution. It's going to go on for many, many years. Um, you know, you think about you know, make an analogy like this. In the 18, I'm sorry, in the 19th century, we talk about railway, right? People invest huge amount of money in the railway market, um, in railway stocks. Um, and then, you know, in the 1970s, the computers, right? Microsoft, these companies making a lot of money. Uh, later on, in the 1990s, the internet. Uh, that's a that's a, another wave of revolution. Now it's all about AI. I think it's some of the things are happening right now. And I think I think history is, is repeating itself. And lastly, Dr. Gong, we do hear some concerns on the monopoly role that NVIDIA plays. They say it will take a half a decade to put a dent in the NVIDIA monopoly on chips. What's your take on that? I think, you know, usually in an emerging new field, the, the talk about antitrust or anti-monopoly, I think it's always uh, premature. Uh, you know, this is a very dynamic market. Uh, things are just starting to happen. Um, and I don't think the government should interfere in, in a situation like this. It's, you know, what we are seeing is dynamic competition. Um, you know, if after, say, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, we're still only seeing just one company sort of holding the choke point of the AI chips, and then we can probably start talking about antitrust. But at this moment, uh, I don't think that we should let competition policies stand in the way of uh, innovations that was Zhang Gong, professor with the University of International Business and Economics. This is Road Today. Stay with us. Hello there. This is Ge Anna, your host of Road Today. Hey there. I'm your host, Wang Zihang, with the Beijing Hour. As I eagerly await the arrival of my little dragon, I want to share a heartfelt blessing with all the moms and their babies' bundles of joy. For the year of the Chinese dragon, I'd like to wish you pian ruo jing hong, wan ruo you long. That's to say that I wish you the grace of startled swan and the wandering dragon in 2024. May the year of the Chinese dragon bring you strength, wisdom, and endless moments of bliss. Wish you and your precious ones a truly enchanting year ahead. Hi, this is Zhiyun. May you find the hidden dragon in yourself in the year of the Chinese dragon. Be there with me at the chat lounge. Happy Chinese New Year! You are listening to Road Today with me, Ge Anna, in Beijing. The China Wildlife Conservation Association has said it has inked agreements with Madrid Zoo Aquarium of Spain and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance of the U.S. concerning cooperation on the reservation of giant pandas. The association said it will further strengthen the daily health monitoring and physical examinations of giant pandas living abroad in 2024 and ensure the full coverage of field inspections and assessments. It said ensuring the health and safety of giant pandas living abroad is the most important premises and a foundation of international cooperation.
Since the 1990s, China has carried out joint protection research initiatives with 26 institutions from 20 countries and successfully bred 68 giant panda cubs in 41 litters. So to talk more on this, joining us in the studio is my colleague Liu Kun, who previously covered China-U.S. cooperation in the conservation of giant pandas during her tenure as a correspondent in Washington D.C. Thanks for joining us, Quinn. Thank you for having me, Anna. Let's dive into panda conservation first. Why exactly are these cuddly creatures so in- incredibly important to protect? What's the big picture here?、Mm. Right. So Anna, and let me tell. Let me begin by telling you and our audiences one thing that you already know,、mm-hmm. which is nobody in the world does not like panda. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that's true, right?、Um, panda is the oldest、uh, extant species of bear, and is found only in some parts of、uh, a few mountain ranges in south、uh, and also central China in provinces like Sichuan, Shanxi, and Gansu provinces.、Uh, it has lived in those bamboo. Forest for several million years, according to scientific research.、Um, some people,、uh, many people, actually, as you said, find these、uh, chunky, cuddling,、uh, lumbering animals to be cute.、Mm. But、uh, honestly, giant pandas can be as dangerous as any other kind of bear.、Uh, In fact,、uh, pandas are giant pandas are so important that the inspiration for worldwide fund for nature WWF logo came from Chuchu, which is a giant panda that arrived in London Zoo in 1961, the same year that WWF was created.、Uh, so the WWF funders thought that. You know the image of pandas actually overcome、uh, the language barriers across different countries and nations. So they decided that you know what we're gonna make Chuchu the logo <coughs> of our、uh, organization.、Uh, the thing is, Anna, by saving pandas, we're not only saving the species as well. We're saving so much more. For example, we are we're helping to preserve the kind of the forests. Uh, or the lifeline of a host of other、uh, endangered animals in that part of China, including the golden snub-nosed monkey, that you know a lot of people、uh, know and like.、Um, and also, the panda's habitat is very important for the local community for their, you know, food, income, fuel for cooking, heating, medicine, etc. And pandas mountains,、uh, you know, from form the watersheds of the Yangtze and also Yellow Rivers,、uh, which are the im- important economic belt for China. Economic benefits, you know, derived from these are、uh, uh, just enormous. By saving panda, we're actually saving a lot, you know, for not only for China but for the world. But Quinn, I'm curious about the global efforts to save pandas. Can you walk us through how China teams up with zoos from around the world to conduct research and ensure the survival of these iconic animals?、Mm, right. So、uh, records show that you know this、uh, tradition of panda sharing actually dates back to the Tang Dynasty,、wow. when、uh, you know books show that two live white bears were sent to Japan,、uh, the Imperial Japan. At the time, and experts have later determined that the bears were actually giant pandas. So,、um, as I said earlier, in 1961, the giant panda Chuchu arrived in、uh, the London Zoo. The first two zoos that were given to the United States、uh, was were Lingling and Xingxing, who came into、uh, the National Zoo in Washington in 1972 because during the historical meeting between Richard Nixon and Mao Zedong,、uh, the wife of Richard Nixon said,、uh, "You know, she likes these、uh, animals so much that China decided, as a as a friendship、uh, sign, to give these two pandas to America." And it later started what people call the pandemonium in America because everyone across the country were coming into the zoo to see them. Well, unfortunately,、uh, none of Lingling's five cubs lived more than a few days. Lingling died of heart failure in 1992, and Xingxing was euthanized in 1999.、Mm-hmm. And then. Uh, in 1980s,、uh, China ceased giving away its pandas because of,、uh, you know, just、uh, as part of efforts to protect、uh, this endangered species.、Uh, since then, China has instead offered short-term loans, 
you know, uh, to ensure these animals are returned to the country. The loans are usually uh, lasting for 10 years and can be extended. So zoos uh, who are on these loan agreements usually receive a healthy reproductive pair. And then any cubs born during the loan period are the property of China. And during those years, you know, scientists and vets both sides are in close contact with each other, share their observation and research results on giant pandas with each other. Uh, but eventually, you know, the young pandas must be sent home when they are between uh, two to four years old. Mm. Then now imagine a panda is loaned to a zoo abroad. It's quite an event. But how does the zoo go about welcoming and caring for the uh, for this special guest? What's the typical process for integrating a loaned panda into a zoo's care and exhibition? Mm. Well, as, uh, as you said earlier, I had the privilege of reporting on panda conservation and research uh, between the Smithsonian National Zoo and uh, China when I was based in D.C. I enjoyed every bit of it. Uh, so when I was in D.C., there were three pandas living in the National Zoo, Meixiang Tiantian, the couple, and also their child, Bebe. Uh, so giant pandas are usually kept in a special uh, exhibition center in a zoo, and people come from all over the country to see them. Um, and, uh, you know, for occasions like birth, birthdays, Chinese New Year's, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, everybody coming in to celebrate. The Chinese ambassador is usually there, you know, to say something and uh, give a small ceremony. Uh, during my time, I reported on, you know, housewarming parties for the couple because uh, they have renovated the panda house. And I reported, you know, the, the departure of Bebe to China in 2019 uh, because of based on the agreements between the two governments. Bebe was on a FedEx plane, mm-hmm. uh, FedEx plane and accompanied by his keeper, uh, carrying 30 kilos of bamboo, you know, fruits, biscuits, waters, and, and others. Um, it was, it, I remember, you know, on that day, almost every media outlet in D.C. were talking about it. It was on the top news of uh, national public radio. <laughs> it was a very emotional moment for the keeper because they have spent, you know, every bit of their, you know, working time with baby. So covering panda, panda is definitely, you know, one of uh, the moments that I like about my career. <laughs> Such an experience. Thanks, Liu Quinn. That's my colleague Liu Quinn and a former correspondent in Washington, D.C. That's all the time we have for this edition of Road Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. I'm Anna in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.